Hello, it's episode 13 of On Design. I'm Stuart Chapman, and this is episode 13 of the Big Pictures on Design podcast, the podcast which is on, around, and near the topic of design. I was delighted to have the opportunity to meet Vicky Bullen for this episode. After an impressive 23 years of brand design agency Coley Portobello, Vicky is now a CEO and on the board of Ogilvy, of which Coley's is a part. We talked about the role of neuroscience in design and the balance between art and science, diversity and the challenge of being a woman in business and the qualities that Vicky feels have been important in her role. I went to visit Vicky at Coley Portobello's office in Sea Container's house, which enjoys a wonderful view out over the Thames. So without further ado, here's Vicky. How's my day been so far? It's been busy. It started out very nicely because we do a board breakfast um, once a month, we get together as a board and we have breakfast. Mm. And that's a time, to be honest, we don't have much time to be just uh, sociable and to chat about each other's lives. Mm. So there's always a bit of that. So John's just been on holiday. We were talking about Thailand and what he's been doing in Thailand. Um, and uh, Jen was up at, you know, four o'clock this morning with her toddler. So we shared stories of that. And then there's always a few things that are important to talk about for the business. Uh, a lot of the time it is, it does seem to be the case that in business, you're so focused on the work and what you've got to achieve that you don't often get to talk to each other. So you think that's important? I think it's really important. I mean, I, I like the fact that I work with people that I genuinely like um, and people who I admire and people who I can learn from. Um, and that is such an important part of why I've stayed at Coney Portobello, which I know we're going to talk about a little bit later. Um, and I think we get so little time to do that, especially now, even more now than 20 years ago. You know, we are just constantly on, 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 all the time, task focused, and don't take enough time to just know each other and talk to each other. You know, it's that thing of, you know, you walk into a meeting now and we sit on our phones and look at messages rather than actually talking to each other about, you know, what happened yeah. at the weekend, what did you do last night, what did you watch on the deli? You know, it just doesn't happen anymore because people are on these things constantly. Perhaps symptomatic of uh, society at large that we yeah. have lost that connection a little bit. Yeah, a little bit, yeah. yeah. It's interesting though, I think it's changing again. I mean, I, I've got a 16-year-old and an 18-year-old and my 16-year-old announced to me this weekend that she was renouncing social media. Really? Because she didn't want to do friendships like that anymore. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So she's going real world, is she? She's going real world. Mm. She's going to use Snapchat for organising to see her friends, but she wants to use it less to conduct her friendships. Mm, interesting. Yeah. Um, and speaking of um, people and how people interact with each other, um, I know one of the focuses here at Cody Portobello is how people think and how people behave. Um, and you've, put, you've really put neuroscience at the heart of how you approach design and the creative process. Yeah. So why is that? Okay, so for many, many, many years, Cody Portobello has um, adhered to what we call a philosophy, a way of working that we call visual planning. Um, and we always knew that visual planning worked, but we weren't sure why visual planning worked. 
So what is visual planning? So visual planning is about using a lot of visuals in the creation of strategy, essentially. It's about getting to better strategies through visuals. And it started out very, very originally as a way of exploring a design brief. So it was about getting clarity. It was about really understanding precisely what each of the words in that design brief meant. It was mm. about getting distinctiveness. It was about creating a visual bridge between strategy and creativity. And then we realised that actually, as we started to bring those strategies to life visually, those strategies themselves were getting better, getting more distinctive, getting more evocative, leading to better creative work. And we started to ask ourselves, well, why is that? Um, and we then went away and did quite a bit of exploration, quite a bit of reading. We talked to Rory Sutherland, who is um, uh, you know, involved in Ogilvy, clearly very involved in Ogilvy and a real champion of behavioural science. We talked to lots of neuroscientists, we did a lot of research and we started to understand more about why visual planning worked. Mm. And it really came down to the basics of how our brains work. And we were fascinated by that because we started to understand better how consumers make decisions about brands. And our belief is that if you can really begin to understand how consumers make decisions about brands, you can do better work that is more likely to have more influence mm. on consumers making a decision about, about the brand that you're working on. So we make our decisions. What we, what we learned, as we learned about neuroscience, was um, something which I think... People have kind of, certainly designers have intuitively understood for an awful long time. We make our decisions primarily in what's called the system one part of the brain. The system one part of the brain, as you very well know, is the rapid response part of the brain, the part of the brain that thinks without even knowing that it's thinking. The uh, system two part of the brain is the heavy lifting part of the brain, is the conscious thinking part of the brain. And we make most of our decisions first and foremost in the system one part of the brain. Sometimes we rationalise those decisions in the system two part of the brain. What we found really interesting as designers is the fact that the vast majority of the information well over 90% of the information that is processed by the system one brain is visual. And that, I think, starts to explain and to, to put some science behind the power of design as mm. an influencer over consumer choice. So by starting to understand that, you can start to think about what you need to do with design. We talk about seducing the subconscious and convincing the conscious. We need to appeal to both system one and we need to appeal to system two because people will rationalise their mm. decisions. But first and foremost, we need to appeal to that system one. And so we've got various ways of doing that. So we've got what we call some rules of thumb, the heuristics, essentially, to guide us in the work that we do. And very importantly, we've continued to develop visual planning. And I think what's interesting about visual planning is if you think about how most strategy is done, most strategy is done in a very system two biased way. Mm. It's lots of heavy lifting thinking, lots of reading of research reports, lots of discussion around tables. And there's nothing wrong with that because you really do need that. But we believe that you also need to throw some system one thinking into the mix mm. because then you start off with strategies, you bake system one thinking into those strategies right from the very beginning. You know, I think so often, if you think about it, so often I think clients brief something in and then there's a little bit of just kind of, crossing your fingers and hoping to God that the designer is going to come up with the right thing. Yeah. And this is about 
taking away some of that crossing of the fingers. This is about being more sure of getting positive results and yeah. real-world brand success. Which I think is a bit of a... It's kind of a shake-up to uh, the way that design has been done historically, perhaps, because you would use the word science to describe it. Um, and one of the things that's always really interested me about, uh, about this area is that a lot of the reason why... Um, uh, designers will come into this industry is because they love the artistic side of it. They love art and creativity. And as an industry, we're increasingly focused on what is the science of branding and the science of consumer behaviour and um, how do you make someone essentially want to buy and love your product more than someone else's. Um, and it's increasingly thinking about those within the scientific framework. Do you think there's um do you think there's a tension there between the way that the industry is moving and um the kind of core or where where the design industry came from in the first place? In our experience there isn't a tension because I think designers almost intuitively think this way anyway. So those some of those rules of thumb are just part of what a designer's innate skills are mm. or their trained skills in some in some instances probably a little bit of both. But you know for example the fact that we learn by association, that we learn things in system two and we encode them in system one. Designers haven't known the science behind that ever, but they know that people understand things through associations. That's why they choose iconography, colours, textures that are going to communicate a certain thing because they understand that those things will communicate what they're trying to say about that brand. We now understand it scientifically. And so what that's enabled us to do is to, you know, to think, to think more rigorously about that, um, to check that we're fulfilling those things. And I don't mean with a checklist. It's never a checklist. There's normally one or two rules that you need to think about, depending on what your particular problem is. Um, but also to develop some tools which actually use system one methodologies to really help us. So, for example, really understanding what a brand's ex existing distinctive assets are, but understanding that in a system one way. Understanding what um, people's motivations are, you know, what are they really, what's really driving them, what are their drivers in, in, for, in different categories and, and for different products and different brands. All of those things are, you know, there's science mm. there, but it's about science to inspire creativity. Yeah. What role does Insight play for you guys at Cody Waterbill? I think it's so important because I think unless you've got a real insight, you can't get to a strong brief. And unless you've got a strong brief, you can't get to good work. <clears throat> it's as simple as that. You know, insight is, insight is everything mm. in terms of getting to a good brief. And thinking about uh, neuroscience and its integration into Cody Waterbill, it's, it's clear that... Um, You've integrated it fundamentally into the way that you work, and you, it sounds like it's kind of the integration of the way you work even before Daniel Kahneman came along. Unknowingly integrated Unknowingly. before Daniel Kahneman came along. Yeah, yeah. Um, but interestingly, the way its influence on the industry is that everyone's talking about this. So, is it a USP for Coley Portobello, or is it actually just kind of table stakes for the industry now? I don't think it's table stakes for the industry yet. I actually don't think many agencies are talking about it and really applying it practically. I think I, I do think agencies are talking about it. 
Um, you know, some of our direct competitors are starting to talk about it. A couple of them have been talking about it for a long time. But what I haven't seen is people adapting their ways of working mm. to be able to take it on board and to actually change what they do as a result of that thinking. Mm. So I think there are changes in the way people are researching their work and so on, but actually creating the work, yeah. I haven't seen that many changes. Mm. And so actually what we're finding is, I think you know, I think it has helped us to have a very clear proposition, a very clear story, and that really helps in a very competitive, saturated design market, you know, where um, we have lots of talented people in the UK, um, you need a really clear and differentiated proposition in the same way that our clients' brands need them. Mm. Um, so it has been an enormous help for us to really understand why what we do works. Yeah. Because we have a story to tell, and stories, as we know, are incredibly important. It's a it storytelling to... in industry, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And I think um, you talked about heuristics, and you talked about establishing guidelines and principles for what makes good design. You said it's not a checklist, mm. but it there are some principles which uh, you guys will use internally to make sure that the design that goes out the door is um, is fitting and right and, and will work for the, the design solutions for which it's intended. Um, do you think that by increasingly applying science and, um, and creating, if not rules, but guidelines for what is good design and making it into a science, do you think that there is a risk that we um, either deter um, intuitive designers like that um, or that we somehow take the, the joy out of the, out of the creative process? Well, I don't think you should ever take intuition out of the design process. I think intuition is absolutely at the heart of the design process and I think designers, you know, that is their incredible skill that uh, people like I admire all the time. Um, I think this is just a way of making sure that that intuition has delivered a result which is right. It's about, it's about inspiring intuition, partly, mm. So using system one thinking to inspire and to give a catalyst to a designer. And it's about then looking at where we're getting to and thinking about whether or not it's really going to work in the real world. Mm. So um, I don't think it's about taking out intuition. I, re I really don't. I think that is such an important part of the creative process. And in fact, you know, something that we... The other thing we've worked very hard on recently is... Uh, trying to make sure that we have better stimulus in terms of helping people get to better ideas. So, you know, one of the things that we have introduced over the last couple of years is proper ideation workshops for the actual design process itself, which we haven't done before. Um, and that's that's. So I think this is this is all about stimulus to get to better work yeah. and to make sure that the work that we've got is as good as it can be. It's not about trying to constrain the creative process. And guidelines themselves are so interesting these days anyway, aren't they? When you talk about this, this is about guidelines for getting to an idea, mm. but you talk about guidelines at the end, they're completely different to how they used to be these days because it's no longer about those strict rules that we all used to worry about and making sure that everything is you know, one millimetre here and one millimetre there. It's so much more fluid these days. And it's so complicated and brands have to live in so many different places and they have to move and be dynamic. You know, when I started out in this industry, there was no internet, there was no email, there was no digital. 
Artwork was flat artwork with markups. You know, it was just a completely different world. And brands today just don't live like that. Mm. Um, and so guidelines have to change. And I think that will only change more and more and more. You know, as brands become more and more individualized and personalized, we're going to have to adapt to that as voice comes in and becomes more and more important. Voice recognition becomes mm. more and more important. Guidelines are going to have to adapt so that brands know how they should be talking to people, what they should be saying, what, you know, tone of voice has always been there, but what should that voice sound like? How should it interact? Should it be a nice conversation like this or should it be a Paxman-style interrogation? <laughs> Which I don't normally do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and um, what brands do you feel have created a strong brand world? We still have endless FMCG brands who come to us with a pure packaging brief. And I don't actually believe that there should be such a thing as a pure packaging brief anymore. Because again, that's not how brands exist. Mm. Um, so what brands are doing brand world incredibly well? I think a lot of the more experiential brands have had to think about it more quickly. So brands where people literally live and feel the brand... Um, from you know, from um, seeing the brand, finding the brand, through to actually, uh, you know, with hospitality brands, for example, living the brand, being in the brand, uh, staying in the brand, and so on. I think they've had to think quite hard about it, um, and some of them are doing a reasonably good job. Um, I think some of the car brands have actually done a pretty good brand, a pretty good job. And again, mm. I think that's about the fact that it's not just a brand that you look at and that you um, you experience through advertising. You literally you're in it, and that whole brand experience needs to run all the way through from the moment that you start thinking about the car all the way through to um, you know that first time that you drive it, and then every time that you drive it thereafter. So, you know, having always said that I would never, ever, ever drive, I'm not sure I'm going to admit to the brand, but my particular car. Okay. Um, <laughs> I then, I then, my husband persuaded me that I really should try it. And um, I sat in it and loved it, the whole experience of it. Oh, the intrigue's intrigue killing me. I'll tell you what it is, but it's a Mercedes. And I okay. got a bit embarrassed because it felt far too grown up for me. Interesting. And um, it felt a little bit, um, it felt like I needed to be 10 years older to be driving it. And he said to me, no, you really need to, um, you really need to try this. And, and so I did. And the experience of the brand was so um, great. Uh, and it was every single little detail from the way that the um, guy in the uh, dealership dealt with us through to the kind of, um, experience of choosing what I wanted in the car through to actually driving the car itself mm. it's been it was incredible yeah. and so you know I think that those some of those brands are really getting brand worlds right um, and looking at the world that Cody Portobello's done have you um, with that focus on brand world are there any pieces of work that you look on which you're really proud of for having created a strong brand world I'm really proud of so much of our work and sometimes brand world is going all the way through and sometimes we haven't been allowed or that hasn't been our scope um, even if we've always had an eye on that but you know I, I just think last year some of the work that we did the work that we did was so varied last year and that's what I really love about working one of the things that I really love about working at Cody Portobello so last year you know the work went from an enormous piece of work uh, for Tesco um, and so you know 
really thinking about retail and the retail experience and own brands role in the retail experience all the way through to creating a new brand for a TV show called Get the Fuck Out of My House and who wouldn't love working on a brand called Get the Fuck Out of My House but I think blue language is sorely missing in this industry (laughs) (laughs) Um, so you know you can't get much much more different than that through to working for a Swiss biotech business um, that nobody will have heard of but in fact that produces ingredients for so many of the, um, the drugs and the over-counter remedies that, that we all use day to day. Really incredibly different, diverse work. Um, and ranging from uh, jobs where we were able to go absolutely from the beginning all the way through to the end in terms of brand strategy through to entire brand world and brand experience and employee engagement and all of those things, to jobs where actually our job was to take a strategy, to bring it to life visually, and to start to think about some of that experiential stuff, but Mm. actually there were other people involved. And that's so much more important these days, that kind of seamless integration between us as an agency and all the other agencies that we we work with that now our clients partner with. Because for the same reason that Brand World is important, actually making sure that agencies come together, Mm. work together... (coughs) put the brand at the heart of what we do and the client at the heart of what we do rather than ourselves and create seamless integrated teams. Incredibly, incredibly important. Do you think that's changed? Oh, I think it's changed massively. And I look at what's happening in WPP and um, in Ogilvy. It's horizontality, which is about different disciplines coming together. And certainly at Ogilvy, that's exactly... um, that's incredibly important to us that sort of see that seamless integration uh, putting the client at the heart of what we do putting client problems at the center and building teams around that that's how we are uh, that's what our future at Ogilvy is all about and Cody Portobello is part of Ogilvy um, and we share some clients we've got lots of independent clients as well but we share some clients and that's all about bringing the team of the right talent together mm. to solve a client's problem. I can see there's an awful lot of advantages for a client to come to um, an agency which is part of a group and can therefore draw on the expertise or different parts of the brief can go to different um, agencies within that group and there be a seamless communication and a joint and joined up thinking. Are there any challenges um, that come with that? Um, I think it would be naive of me to say that there are no challenges, but I think it's very interesting because the business is changing to adapt to those challenges. So, for example, um, you know, as Ogilvy moves forward, uh, we will um, uh, the vast majority of the business will have one PL. So, in the old days, the old style of doing things was that you had different disciplines, and each discipline had a different PL, and that made people feel like a bit territorial sometimes. Mm. That's not how it will be moving forward. There'll be one PL. Right. So, it's about putting the client at the heart of it. Um, because I think, you know, the world of our clients is changing, and we need to adapt. To the world of our clients is changing because the world of brands is changing, the world of consumers is changing. Agencies have to change mm. in order to meet those challenges and to be able to work differently to meet those changing needs. So, one area I really wanted to ask you about was diversity in design because I know it's an area you're particularly interested and passionate about. Mm. Um, and as a female CEO in a male dominated industry, um, so what is what is your interpretation of what is meant by diversity in design and why is it important? 
I think diversity in design means so many different things these days. I don't think it's just about gender. Mm. Um, I think gender is still very important. I don't think we are there yet. I don't think we're as bad as some other parts of the communications industry. We're not quite as um, stale, male, white as um, some other parts of the communications industry, but we're certainly not perfect. Um, and there's some interesting discussions going on around that at the moment at the DBA level, and you've got people like Natalie Mayer who's set up Curling the Gap and so on. So the design industry is starting to really talk about this more. I don't think their problem is as big as it has been elsewhere. In the world of advertising, you've had Creative Equals that's been around for quite a long time now, and there's probably been more thinking done there. But um, it's not. it's certainly not perfect. So gender is one aspect of it. Um, uh, uh, nationality is another aspect of it and really top of mind in terms of Brexit you know if I think about my business we've got um, we've got a Latvian lady we've got two Greek people we've got a couple of French people we've got a couple of Americans we've got a Brazilian we've got a Malaysian guy and that is and, and I've probably forgotten some things and that is incredibly important I think to creativity especially when you're working on global brands. I think it's really important that you have incredibly diverse people from diverse parts of the world. So I am worried about, I'm not worried about Brexit in terms of those people, because I think that will be fine that year and they've got visas and all of those things. But I am worried about Brexit in terms of the future, not least because I'm really concerned about how much talent is going to be coming through because we have so over-indexed on investing in the STEM subjects at, to my belief, the expense of the creative subjects that I think our talent pool is just going to get smaller and smaller and smaller. And if we can't go outside of the UK to find those brilliant, brilliant, brilliant creative minds that we need in order to do brilliant work because we need diversity to do brilliant work then I'm a little bit worried. Mm. So, um, so I think diversity is a huge subject. I think that's one place where we're very lucky to be part of a big group because we've got a lot of people thinking about it. And even at an Ogilvy level, so it's being thought about very hard at a WPP level, but at an Ogilvy level, you know, if I think about what we've got in Ogilvy, we've got the most amazing networks. So we've got um, women at Ogilvy, we've got parents at Ogilvy, we've got Ogilvy Roots, We've got Ogilvy Pride, real networks of people who are really thinking about this and working hard to make sure that actually as an organisation, holding us to an account as an organisation, mm. making sure that we are truly diverse. If I think about gender diversity, I think the thing that we've done that um, is, has probably been most powerful is that we, we have a very, very flexible approach to, um, to work in terms of you know, I have an awful lot of women in my organisation who um, have young children and men, actually. It's not just the women. Um, but I have, I have a lot of people who do four-day weeks. Um, and that now I just expect it when women come back from maternity leave that they'll ask for a four-day week mm. and they might ask to work from home for one of those days. Um, and I think, I think it's perfectly doable. When I had my children, I went to a four-day week. Um, when I was CEO, became CEO, I went to a four-and-a-half-day week. That actually stopped me from getting a job once. Really? I was actually, I've actually been told directly by the person who wanted to recruit me, 
unfortunately, you know, I was quite happy at Kenfield to Bell, but, you know, you always explore your options, don't you? Um, and he told me very, very directly that he wanted me to do the job, but he wouldn't give it to me because I would only do four and a half days a week. Because that Friday afternoon. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, and so uh, but I've never felt like that. Now, I do five days a week now. My children are older. Um, but for a while, I needed to do four and a half days a week because I needed to balance mm. um, my work and my life. And I believe that's so important. And so we have... We have lots of people who do that, and as I said, not just women, men as well, because I think parenting has changed so much. Mm. And, uh, so I think that is really, really important, recognising that people don't have to be in the office all the time to work, recognising that life patterns are a bit different these days, um, ma- making sure that we have decent maternity leave policies, mm. you know, the basics. This is, but this is perhaps too broad a question. But um, what are the kind of challenges that women face, um, both in the design industry and further afield? Well, I think we all know that there is still a degree of unconscious bias, um, and so you know we've all seen the statistics in terms of you know how many men get through just on CVs versus women on CVs, just at the very basic level. So perhaps one of the things that we should be doing as an industry is to make sure that we only ever look at CVs which don't have a name on them. Mm. I never really understand why a recruitment consultancy hasn't made that their thing, mm. their story, their brand. That we will only supply CVs without a name on them. Um, I think, I mean, there's a, uh, the woman who heads up Creative for Ogilvy Group, she's got a great policy. She will only review portfolios blind without knowing whose portfolio it is. That's interesting. So when she's actually um, looking to recruit talent, she doesn't know who's, who's created those portfolios, and I think that's a brilliant thing to do. Mm. So I think addressing unconscious bias is a really important thing to do. Um, and we have done some training around that. I've talked about flexible working. Um, and as to, you know, you asked me what, what, what challenges do they face? We've talked already quite a bit about balancing family and work. And I think both men and women face that challenge. And I think business today needs to face that challenge head on and come up with intelligent solutions for how people can find their way around it. Mm. The world is completely different. So 25 years ago when I started and uh, and the expectation was that I would be in the office from nine until if it took it, midnight, every night. And my driving ambition at the time told me that that was okay. That's not how people want to live today. Mm. And we need to adapt our businesses to accommodate the way that people want to live today. Um, And... We try really, really hard at Cody Portobello to make sure that that's, you know, that actually people have a work-life balance. And that's not just about flexible working for parents, that's about flexible working for people who don't have children who want to, who want to do different things with their life. It's about trying to make sure that people aren't in the office every hour that God gives and that, you know, people are out of... Normally, I leave the office most evenings at around about quarter past six, and normally there's one or two people left, there's a handful of people left, but it's pretty much, you know, people are, people are on the way home. It's good going time. for this and industry. that's good, mm. but that's how it should be. Mm. And actually people will, if, if we need people to stay, people will stay, because everybody wants to do the right job and to do it well. But people need time to chill out. And if you think, especially as believers in neuroscience <laughs> and in subconscious thinking, the reality is... 
Very often, the best ideas come when people's brains are wandering into other areas and into other territories. Yeah. That's why you have your best ideas in the shower. I do have my best ideas in the shower. Yeah. Do you have any advice for um, for ambitious women in the industry or further afield? I mean, I, I'm thinking about um, Sheryl Sandberg has um, had Lean great in. success with Lean In, um, which perfectly encapsulates the, the idea that actually it's, um, you can't afford to sit back and um, and be passive. Mm. You have to be active in, in conversations and, um, and be quite assertive. Well, I think that's absolutely true. And if you think about the conversation that you and I had before we started recording this podcast, which was um, me saying, no, I don't always really like doing these things. Um, you know, that's a classic female thing. You know, we, we are less confident about sharing our voice and we have to be more confident about sharing our voice and especially people like me I have an absolute duty to do that because other women need to know that it's okay um so I think Sheryl Sandberg's Lean In is a brilliant book and if you haven't read it you really must read it um and absolutely women have to stick their hands up and ask for things women are really bad at asking for promotions and pay rises you have to ask. Men ask all the time, all the time. And women need to learn how to do that. And they need to learn how to articulate why they deserve that promotion or that pay rise. Um, I think about myself when I was asked twice before I took the CEO role at Curly Portobell, twice I was asked to consider if I'd put my hat in the ring for the job. And I said no, both times. And that was because on that sort of what I saw as being the job description for CEO, there was about 10% of the job that I didn't feel very comfortable about. So I thought, well, I can't do that. We know that most men, if they see that they can't do 40% of the job, they'll still stick their hat sure, in the ring. Sure, I can do that, yeah. Yeah. So we just, we, as women, we do have a responsibility for being braver ourselves and for putting ourselves forward. And businesses have a responsibility for making sure that they think about that and mm. that they ask and that they encourage and that they provide mentorship and guidance for women and and help them there's so much going on in our business at the moment about that and we do some brilliant 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 initiatives which are all about um, empowering women and that goes from more junior women all the way up to women like me I mean WPP runs this amazing course called X Factor for senior women um, which is really about um helping us as female leaders really understand what we want our destiny to be and going out and knowing how to go and get it. Mm. Um, so there is some really good stuff out there. It strikes me that, um, that one of the things that really needs to happen to, uh, to drive diversity uh, forward is that it's not um, just being tapped by the minorities in question, but actually this is a conversation for everyone. I I think that's so important and I think the days of, we were talking about just this just last week, I think, and it was in the context of the President's Club dinner, mm, yeah. and we were saying that the days of, um, I think it's fine to have single sex organisations, but those single sex, I'm a member of WACL, so Women in Advertising and Communications in London, yeah. a really powerful body with some amazing women in it. Now, Wackle's policy is that it's a female-only club, but we engage with men all the time. Men are invited to the events, um, men are speakers, um, panel debates are both men and women, 
and um, we engage with women in discussing, you know, WACL's purpose and so on. So, but it's a female-only club. Um, I think single-sex clubs are absolutely fine and they're really important because they are about supporting and mentoring and nurturing and all of those things. And I think single-sex men's clubs are fine too. But those clubs absolutely have to engage with the opposite sex mm. and with the issue. So actually having discussions around this just as women and just as men is the wrong thing to do. Women, we, we women need to talk to men and to have men as part of the debate and the discussion because actually most men are good guys and they believe the same things as us and they believe that there should be equality. Mm. The only thing I haven't, there's one thing I haven't talked about which is neurodiversity, but I don't know much about it. Nor do I, it's just going to be asking a question about it hard. <laughs> yeah, well, I just, it's a new concept and I find it really interesting. If you think about um, how we recruit people, and I, I, should, I, should, I should say straight away, I have two children who are dyslexic, okay? And so, and one of them has found fantastic coping strategies, and he's very academic, and he's going to do, you know, he's going to do fine. My other one is very intelligent, but hasn't found the coping strategies, mm. and so she's going to struggle. Many, many, many creative people are dyslexic. Mm. Huge numbers of creative people are dyslexic, and yet business is naturally biased against people who don't achieve academically because of neuro, because of neurodiversity. I think it's a new area of diversity which is something which is going to come through. So I mean um, you've had yeah, you've been a Curly Board girl for 23 years which is an incredible achievement. Uh, a bit odd. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, tell me how you how this how that came to be how you got into design in the first place. I'm one of those classic kind of just sort of found my way there. It wasn't terribly, um, it wasn't terribly focused. When I was at university, I thought I wanted to be a marketer. And um, I was very specific about it. I wanted to market chocolate. Mm. Really? <laughs> and, a very specific target. Yes. Yeah. And, um, and so that's what I thought I wanted to do. And I ended up uh getting through to a couple of second round interviews for, you know, Mars and Cadbury and people like that and just not quite getting there, which actually when I reflect on that now, I do think is again so much of being a woman, holding myself back in those group discussions because I didn't want to be the pushy one, um, you know, all mm. of those things that we now, I now understand a little bit better. Anyway, um, I therefore thought, well, I need to focus on my finals, and uh, so I did that. I did French, so, you know, it was something about something I loved. It wasn't about vocation. Mm. Um, and when I left university, I wanted to go off travelling for a year, and I went off to the States, and actually I ended up spending um, some time at the new school in New York doing an advertising and marketing course, and then another semester at Columbia doing um, some postgrad marketing stuff uh, just because I was interested in it and so I came back and thought I've got no money I've got to get a job <laughs> and so I started applying for marketing jobs and there was a marketing job advertised with a big printing business so I applied for it and I got it and I thought, right, okay, I'm just going to do this because I need to work. Mm. Um, and actually it turned out it wasn't really a marketing job at all. It was an account exec job. 
Um, mm. And it was working on big clients and running those clients from an internal perspective while there were other people out there, you know, classic salesmen out there mm. um, selling print, essentially. Anyway, it turned out to be incredibly useful because I understand print very, very well. I got poached so by you know a client. So you know your CMYK. I know my CMYK. Your RGB. Yeah, and I understand life <laughs> and all those things. Um, and so I'm terribly old-fashioned because that was the old days of, you know, it was old-style print. Um, anyway, um, I got poached by a client who ran a sort of an integrated communications agency. And I worked there for a while and ended up working for a couple of uh, smaller branding agencies and then eventually ended up at Cody Portobello um, having realised that actually what I was really interested in was brand and design um, and so that sort of became mm. my path and ended up in Cody Portobello as an account director um, uh, we've been through about four offices I think since I joined Cody Portobello at that time we were in Flipcross Street and the business was split into two. We had an FMCG division and a corporate division. Oh, wow. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How bizarre is that? And, um, uh, and yeah, and I've been there ever since. And the reason why I've stayed, because 23 years is a heck of a long time, and a lot of people um, would, wouldn't have done that. And I sometimes do feel a little bit embarrassed. But I've loved it. It's felt like, well, since I've been a CEO, it's felt like my baby, my business, even though it's not really my business, mm. but it does feel like my business. I feel like I've learned all the time. The business has changed fairly constantly over that time and looked to new things. I've worked with some truly brilliant people. Um, so I've, you know, I've worked with brilliant planners. I've worked with brilliant creatives. I've learned loads from those people. Um, it has, we talked about flexibility. I feel as if it allowed me for a, a long time to have a job that I loved, but also to have a family. Um, and then I became CEO about 11 years ago now. Um, and uh, that was really exciting. Um, and I've Again, I, st I continue to feel fulfilled because it continues to challenge me all the time because it, we constantly need to change mm. and adapt and build and uh, tell our story more powerfully and uh, all of those things that are interesting things to do. Mm. And what's the, what do you think has been the secret of your success uh, to join all those years ago and to work your way up to CEO? Is there a particular trait or quality or something you try to apply to that um, has been the driver behind your success, do you think? Uh, I'd like to... I, I mean, I, I think I'm quite... Uh, I care deeply about the people that I work with um, and about people having a good experience here. I don't mind when people leave... I don't always want people to leave Cody Portobello because I have some brilliant people I'd love to hang on forever, to forever. But the reality is people will leave Cody Portobello. That's something I've learned. I used to feel terribly upset whenever anybody said to me, I'm going to leave. But I don't feel like that anymore because actually I want people to grow and develop. And if that means that they need to move on to the next place, it's our job to get them ready. So I think one of the things is I really do... It sounds so wussy, doesn't it? I care about the people. But I believe that the business is all about the people. Mm. I believe that talent is at the heart of the agency. And having great talent, people who are 
capable of doing a great job, who are growing and who are feeling that they're learning, I think that's really, really important. I think the other, one of the other things that I think I am good at and that has been part of my success is really being clear about what the vision for the agency is. Not coming up with that vision on my own, um, because I work with lots of clever people who help me to make the vision better, but making sure that that is a vision mm. and making sure that people are really clear about what that vision is and that they understand what their role is in us achieving that vision. And how many people work for Curly Portobello? About, we're about 80, 85 people at the moment. Um, I mean, one of the other big things that's going on in the industry is freelance at the moment. Mm. There's a huge number of freelancers. So we're about 80, 85 with freelancers. Um, we've doubled in size over the last three years. Really? So we've Gosh. doubled in terms of the number of people. We've doubled in terms of our revenues. Um, so it's been a very good three years. It's quite a period of growth. It's a massive period of growth. <laughs> And as your team grows here, uh, I guess you have an increasing responsibility as CEO for nurturing talent and empowering your employees. So do you have a particular approach to that? Um, so, you know, when we were 45 people, you could have a, smaller leadership, a small leadership team who were, you know, primarily responsible for making sure that that was going on. We've had to expand that. So now we have um, a, a management team that we actually call a growth team right. because it is about growth of the agency in every way it's growth of our reputation it's growth of our people it's growth of our offer it's growth of our clients and of course ultimately it's about growth of our revenues and profits but we have a growth team so we've now got a management team as well as a very core you know leadership team so we've had to change the structure a little bit to adapt to the growth to make sure that people are empowered and to make sure that um, people do have the right levels of support to grow to grow as individuals, and, mm. uh, you know. And looking and looking back over the, your twenty three years, are there any projects which are particularly close to your heart? Oh, a few, yeah. I, I mean, there's a few that I've really, really loved. I mean, the one I always there's a couple. I I used to work when I was an account director. I worked on Kimberly Clark, and I I loved working on Kimberly Clark because they have such fantastic brands that are just so. Um, full of insight actually so if you think about what Kimberly Clark make you know they make nappies and I was working on nappies I was working on um, sanitary products mm -hmm. both um, those for um, uh, I'd say there's no nice way to put it menstruation and incontinence <laughs> and the insights when you're working on brands like that are so, so interesting. I mean, the Cotex was really interesting because this is 15 years ago, and I'll tell you about some more recent ones in a minute, but, um, you know, 15 years ago, and at the time that we were working on Cotex, there was this headline in the Times, which now would look really odd, and you'd think, why on earth is there a headline like that? Um, but the headline said, I've seen the future and it's female. So it was a time of massive change. It was a time when women were literally going from, you know, you'd sit in a focus group and women would talk about if I want to come back, if I was ever to come back to this world, I'd like to come back as a man, to it was a time when women stopped saying that because they recognised that actually they didn't need to come back as a man in mm. terms of the opportunities that they could have. So hugely changing time. 
And, um, and, and actually, what Cotex did was to completely and totally shake up that category and to take it from be a cate- being a category that looked as if it had been designed by men and created by men to actually, it, Cotex was a brand that looked and sounded and spoke and did everything as if it had been created by women, designed by women, marketed by women. And in fact, it was a male marketing director. Really? It was very insightful. Um, so I loved that and we got a DNA D for it I loved working on Huggies oh it was just fantastic working with new mums I was a relatively new mum myself it was just brilliant trying to challenge the might of Pampers and in fact we heard on the grapevine grapevine afterwards we we came up with the um, idea that uh, Huggies as a brand should be about uh, giving babies the freedom to thrive and uh, and we didn't. I mean, we we worked very. It was a brilliant relationship with the client. There was a real um, sense of being allowed to be true brand guardians and brand stewards. It was an inter, It was a multi agency interdisciplinary team. That was quite unusual in those days. Mm. Um, and um, and it was just fantastically rewarding. And we heard on the grapevine that it's one of the times when P and G have actually been quite worried about um, what was going on because they recognised that this idea of freedom to thrive was really powerful. So that was brilliant. And then, you know, if I move on through and I think about the next one that really grabbed my heart, it was the Museum of London. Oh, really? Just, it was just a really interesting, interesting project to work on um, where, you know, uh, I felt that the work was brilliant. It was so fascinating working with a museum organisation, which is incredibly complicated, really complex stakeholders. And I loved the work that we did. And I felt it really encapsulated the spirit of London. I felt very excited about it. And um, you've got a 50% record in, on pitches in the last year, at least. Yes. Um, what's the, what is the secret of your success with that? Well, we, um, you know, we weren't as successful as that. We had to do quite a lot of work on ourselves to improve um, because pitching is so expensive. And it is... I find it unbelievable that... Um, I find it unbelievable how we're asked to pitch very often. You know, we're asked to pitch for projects which are worth very small amounts of money. And do an and awful lot of work for them. There's not an awful lot of appreciation. Yeah, there's no sort of understanding or appreciation of how much work goes into them. Um, but we realised that actually uh, our pitch rate wasn't good enough. We realised that um, we were pitching for things that we shouldn't have been pitching for and so on. And so we actually did some serious work on ourselves. And that has gone from the basics of really defining what an ideal client profile is. What kind of client do we want? And actually being pretty rigorous in making sure that we only pitch for things which fit with that ideal client profile. There's got to be a really good reason to pitch for it if it doesn't fit with the ideal client Mm. profile. Then um, being much, much stricter about qualifying the pitch before we go for it. What is the value of this pitch? I just don't buy it when people say to us, oh, well, I don't know what the budget is. I just don't buy that. And if they don't know what the budget is, then we probably shouldn't be pitching for it because it probably means that we're going to end up, you know, not being able to make a sound business case in terms of um, 
in terms of the cost of the pitch versus the value of the project. Then I think the other thing that we did was really understanding that if you are going to go for something, you've got to make a very deliberate decision that you're going to go for it and then you really have to go for it. We had a, a training business, they were very good actually, called JFDI, come in and do some work with us and they have this phrase which is pitch like pigs. <laughs> it's a very long story <coughs> behind it which we won't go into today but essentially the story is pitch like, you know, like it's life or death essentially. Um, and so we have taken a philosophy of pitching for a lot less pitching for the right things, saying no much, much more than we ever did before. And when we do do it, pitching like pigs. Mm. And pitching like pigs means that you have to give people as much time and space as you can, which isn't always easy. So we're experimenting with different things there. we just done a pitch um, this year where we actually moved the team out of the agency into a separate space. They still have their day-to-day do. We're very lucky being in this building. That's easy. Mm. Um, but... Um, uh, that was interesting. You know, you can't take away... In an ideal world, you'd give people a pitch holiday. That's not... The world is not ideal. It's no. real. And so you don't get pitch holidays. But actually, that was really interesting, just giving people mentally the space. They're not in the hurly-burly of the office um, to try and help them just be able to really, really focus. And have you found yourself in that position where you are pitching for a chocolate brand Chocolate brand, which you uh, you dreamt of when you were at uh, university. <laughs> I haven't pitched for a chocolate brand for a long time. I have pitched for chocolate brands in the past, and I've worked on chocolate brands. We used to, I used to do it not when I was an account director. I ran Cadbury's for a long time and then got very fat. Well, it must have been very um, well <laughs> filling and fulfilling. Hopefully, <laughs> I loved it. Yes, it was brilliant. So, looking ahead, um, what's the future for Coley Porterville? So we've got some fantastic momentum going at the moment. I think the future of Coley Portobello is more seamless integration for clients. We are looking to expand internationally. Um, so we are looking currently at New York, um, which would be exciting. And we have one other market in mind as well. Um, so I'm hoping that that is going to be happening. And as ever, trying to stay ahead and to understand what's going on in the world of design and in the world of brands and to make sure that we stay on top of that. So whether that be thinking about how brand guidelines are going to evolve, continue to evolve, as we talked about a little bit earlier, or whether it be about what the impact of AI is going to have Mm. on our world. You know, we need to stay ahead and be prepared and be match fit for the design world of tomorrow. So that was Vicky. Thank you to her for her time and for her candor. I really enjoyed meeting Vicky. She's a very warm human being and it struck me that she must be a very inspiring leader. Visionary and yet down to earth and it's no surprise that Coley Portobello is enjoying such success with her at the helm. And that's it for this episode. If you enjoyed it, please do share it with someone who you think might get something out of it and do subscribe. Our next guest will be Stuart Wood of Heatherwick Studio. So keep an eye out for that. And if you are really keen, you can follow us at On Design Podcast on Twitter and we're on Facebook. And that's it. So thanks as always to Reeves for production support. And until next time, bye for now. <laughs>